Hey, what's up? It's Bobby Portis. I'm Saquon Barkley. I'm Brianna Stewart. This is Showtime Sean Porter. I'm Sugar Ray Lemon. I'm Corey Brewer. I'm Sinisa Estrada, and we run this station. We run this station. We run this station. Barry Zito, the 31-year-old left-hander, 6'2", 205-pounder, off to a great start. A strikeout is the third of the night for Barry Zito. And what a job by Barry Zito. There he goes, 3-2 pitch, and he struck him out. And that tells you just how good Zito is. When Barry Zito signed a $127 million contract, he thought he had everything he needed. Talent, good looks, countless adoring fans, an all-star resume, and a higher salary than any pitcher in baseball history. But in the years that followed, he learned that no amount of money, no amount of external praise, no award or accolade could give him the one thing he desired most, peace of mind. Barry sat down with uninterrupted podcast producer John Fontanelli to explain how, in a sport where he was judged strictly by wins and losses, he was never truly happy until he discovered a more profound way to measure his own value. I'm Joseph Fourier, and this is Unguarded. Barry, thanks so much for joining us today, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here. How is it being back in Los Angeles after living here for so many years? You know, it's uh, it gives me a little anxiety. You know, I was living living high up on the hills and top of Sunset Plaza Drive for a long time, but um, at one point flying the flag for this place. But now it makes me a little nervous. <laughs> I'm kind of like a slower Nashville-y kind of guy now. It's a different speed in Nashville? Oh, yeah, much different. There's still a nice edge to Nashville, though. You kind of, there's the restaurants and all the bars and the good scenes there. But, you know, there, there's a great kind of mellow thing happening out there too. Mm -hmm. So you're promoting your book, Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. Congratulations on the book. It's terrific. Really, really want to commend you on that. So you, did, you guys did a great job. Thank you. Yeah, it was definitely fun trying to bear all the darkness, you know, uh, letting people into the dark stuff, the real stuff, man. It's just, it's all about being real. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I really appreciate anyone who can be so candid about their own story. I'm curious, what was that process like? How did it start? When did you decide you want to write a memoir? And, and what was that timeline like for you? Uh, for me, I, my, my career ended as a baseball player in Nashville. I actually played AAA my last year. And I hooked on with a guy that was, um, at the time, pretty high up with ASCAP. And, you know, they, they uh, get licensing money for songwriters. And uh, so he ended up pushing me into the songwriting world in Nashville. And, uh, but more than that became my manager and, uh, and told me right when my career ended in the fall of 15, um, I think there's a book in there, you know, that story's really interesting, you know, with the kind of the, my parents have this great musical background and then my father, you know, kind of helped me go into baseball. So it was always in the ethers kind of in the background. And then we finally just jumped for it about two years ago and, uh, very long process to kind of dig through the emotions and the memories. And, uh, and I was able to you know, to, I guess, pull it off, had a great co-writer, but, uh, very emotional taking, you know, going back into the head spaces of our past, I think can be very cathartic, but also very difficult. Mm -hmm. No question. Were there any moments for you along the way where you had to decide how honest you wanted to be with, with the readers and the world and things that maybe your friends and family might not know about you that they would learn after the book came out? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I've been married now for almost eight years and my wife's from a very small town in Missouri and, you know, in small towns, things, you know, get around. And so particularly about my past of chasing women, you know, uh, on the streets of Hollywood, um, mm -hmm. 
that was like, okay, how honest are we going to be here? And um, so I had to go back to her, you know, when the book was almost done and really earmark every little part where I mentioned a woman or an ex-girlfriend or just somebody I was, you know, chasing for that own ego validation that I was looking for. And I, and I read her every passage and my wife was just so bold and, and so brave. I mean, at first she reacted and was crying actually and saying, gosh, I can't believe this. My whole family's going to read this. Like, and I was, you know, I was like, but this is kind of my path to you. You know, there's this great country song called God bless this broken road that led me straight to you. And, uh, and so that's kind of what it was. And I was like, honey, like if I wasn't doing all these things, I wouldn't have ended up here with my eyes open and ready to really settle down for life with you. And so um, I think she embraced it. And, and I'm really grateful that Amber, my wife, was able to sign off and just say, let it ride, baby. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. That's the story. So, go, you know, and, and really, I think that's a huge part of any of our journey is if we can accept our own story, there's so much power in that. It's freedom. Instead of trying to hide those little things that kind of give us the ping and the shame and, oh, I don't want to talk about that or let's, let's not ever mention that again. That, mm -hmm. There's no good coming from that. And do you feel a sense of liberation now that a lot of those stories are out there? I do. Yeah, I really do. It, because it, ultimately it's a test. Am I okay with my story? Even if someone thinks I'm this or that, or, you know, the, the thing about rooting against my team, you know, came out and people are up in arms. It's like, no, I'm actually okay because I'm not letting you guys define me anymore. Like I did my whole life. I'm letting God now for me define me, you know? And so that, that's a whole change in my life, dude. Like I was living so that everyone could think I was important for so long, you know? Mm -hmm. And if they didn't, I was going to like go knock on their door and be like, hi, I heard you have a problem with me. Um, can we sit and talk about it? I would love <laughs> to win you over. Right. You know? And there are so many themes in the book that I want to touch on. I want to be mindful of your time. One thing that you just touched on is acceptance. And I think there's something correlated to that with also performance. Athletes are similar to musicians in that way. And there are a lot of jobs that are based around your performance and how people gauge your performance. Um, and that's something that it seems like throughout your career and your life, you're hyper-focused on performance. Do you think those ideas were woven together, this idea of being a performer and also seeking validation? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you see it with the performer mindset. I mean, look, a lot of these kids that were childhood actors, right? Or, you know, actors that were defined by one role or, you know, these musicians. I mean, there's this deep sorrow happening, right? People are taking their own lives and overdosing. And I mean, we've just lost so many incredible people even the last year uh, because the identity gets so intertwined with the performance. And, and, you know, so the ultimate question is, am I good enough even if I'm not good on stage? Am I good enough even if I'm not good in the game? And that was a question for me that was a, a blaring no for many, many years because I never thought anything was more important than my performance. Mm -hmm. And I have a theory that being a starting pitcher has to be one of the most difficult um, types of jobs that you could have as a performer in terms of the spaces between your performances, so to speak, and having to live with your last performance and think about your next performance and circling those days on the calendar. And you write a lot about that. And I'm, I'm curious what your experience is now looking back and and reflecting on just the, the roller coaster ride that is that five-day schedule for a pitcher. Yeah, the five-day rotation is a lot. And, you know, um, 
I think for position players, it's it's harder to go out and be good every day because you're playing 162 games. But also, hey, 0 for 4 yesterday, okay, who cares? You got to be up there in two hours for you know for your first at bat. Mm-hmm. Whereas a pitcher, you get to kind of ruminate on your bad game for four days, or or you get to live in the glory of your good game. And for me, I just took that roller coaster for you know every every inch up and down. I had no steadiness happening for a lot of my career. So if I would pitch a good game. You know, I'd wake up at seven the next day. I'm out in the coffee shops. Hey, anybody want to autograph? You know, <laughs> I had a great game. You should have seen it, you know? Right. And then if I pitched a bad game, I wouldn't leave my house until it was time to go to the field. Cause wow. I was like so deeply in the shame of I, I pitched crappy. And if I go out, they're going to be judging me cause I let the team down and the fans are scowling at me in the coffee shop. But again, the, the bottom theme, it was always me, 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 me. What do you think about me? Do you think about me? What does it mean? And that was ultimately what was driving was was the ego. Do you think it's easier to be a relief pitcher for that reason for some folks that you don't know when your number is going to be called? You don't have that sense of build up to your performances? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as a reliever, you know, you just have that adrenaline and it's always ready to just go, you know, that phone. And I, I did a little bit of relief work when I couldn't crack the rotation late in my career. But, you know, you're sitting down there with seven other guys and that that bullpen phone rings and pretty soon everyone's adrenaline spikes and you just have this, you know, two seconds of, uh, is it me? <laughs> right. And then, you know, here we go. Another theme that you talk a lot about is your relationship with your father. He pushed you in a lot of ways. Ultimately, looking at the relationship that you had with your father and the way he shaped your your baseball career, what what positives do you think he he instilled? And also, do you think that there were some negatives in the ways that he pushed you? Yeah, there was definitely good and bad. I mean, you know, I think for me, and I'm a parent now, I mm-hmm. think we're always going to screw our kids up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, if we do this, you know, we're, we're losing something on the other side. If we go to the other side and fix that, well, something on this side's messed up. So, you know, my father had great intentions and he was so loving and supportive and he was around. I mean, he was 50 when he had me. So he was a great jazz musician with Nat King Cole and had a great, you know, uh, a great job with as a talent manager in Vegas, you know, um, helping, uh, you know, lounge acts and big bands achieve their dreams. So I mm-hmm. came along and now I'm a kid who had dreams, right? So he's going to help me achieve my dreams, kind of like his only client. Mm. And so that that's kind of what happened. And he wasn't working. My mom was a pastor in a, in a new age church that I was raised in. But, uh, you know, so we were in the backyard every day, two hours. And he asked me as a kid, you know, hey, do you want to be a major league pitcher? Like, duh. I mean, come on, who doesn't, right? And so he said, okay, well, I think we can do that together, but you're going to have to work very hard and sacrifice. So I, I agreed to that at seven or eight years old. Didn't really know what I was agreeing to. And so, you know, it was a really a team effort for many years. But by the age of 11 or 12, he was telling my sisters and my mom, don't talk to Barry. He's starting today. And it's like, that's that's a little too intense, I mm-hmm. think, you know, looking back on it. Of course, I didn't know the difference. Um, but baseball slowly became, in a lot of ways, my God. It was the thing that defined me. So a good game meant I was a good person, and a bad game meant I was really not enough that day. And without knowing it, you know, my father kind of was teaching me that there was nothing more important than my performance. Something else that I think is a really fascinating element to your story is the big contract that you signed with the San Francisco Giants. I think for a lot of people from the outside looking in, 
uh, for fans, you look at athletes' career and say, oh, wow, the pressure must completely get lifted when you sign that big contract because you've made it. But it seems like it's the opposite in a lot of cases. And I'm curious what your experience was when you immediately signed that contract and when it's maybe started to become something that was less relief and more stress, more pressure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we we all as, as kids, you know, we have these dreams as we're growing up and we're approaching these dreams thinking that if I can check that box, whatever that is for us, right? For me, it was, you know, a Cy Young or the biggest contract in baseball. If I can check that, then that means I made it. And dude, I'm just going to be stoked when that happens, you know? And then you get to a lot of these places, you know, that, you know, the, those of us that are fortunate to get to these places we've wanted to get, we get there. And we're like, oh, this is actually like way different than I thought. I'm actually not as stoked. I mean, it's really cool, but there's all this other baggage that came with it. We're humans. This is the world. It's kind of a dark place. We all kind of have, we're all trying to do really good things, but we're all kind of screwed up in a little bit of a way, you know? And so I idealized the whole idea of like success in baseball, Cy Young. So, you know, when I actually got there, I mean, the Cy Young for one, I got that in my second year. I was terrified after I won it. I'm like, dude, how do I repeat this? How do I do this again? So the Cy Young for me became a curse. Hmm. It became, they started going, all right, Zito last year won the Cy Young and he's only, you know, he's uh, four and four this year. He's uh, really struggling. And, you know, and again, with the, with the huge contract, that's great. I could afford any car I wanted or house. That's pretty cool for a while. Like you buy a new house and a couple months later, you're like back to baseline, you know, just like a new pair of shoes, right? I mean, a new sweater, a new phone, anything cool and new it wears off and now you're looking for the next the next hit right it's like mm. a, like a heroin addict man you need that next high so that's what it was you know the contract was awesome but now i had to pitch and validate it and that was terrifying and there was someone in the giants organization who told you, you might as well get your contract number tattooed on your forehead right <laughs> the general manager yeah brian sabian who actually built those great yankee teams in the 90s and 2000s yeah he built all that over there so yeah, Brian told me the day I had my press conference. He said, "You might as tell, you might as well tattoo that effing number on your forehead, because that's all they're ever going to know you as." And I was like, uh, "I don't even know what to make of that." <laughs> I mean, that's terrifying to hear that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there are athletes that you've, uh, like teammates that you've had, or or peers in baseball, or other athletes or performers that you interacted with that handled that better than others? And what do you think it is that makes people more comfortable mm. with that pressure versus people who maybe collapse or feel more of that pressure? Yeah, I think I think self consciousness kills you at the end, right? In any profession. Um, when you're being authentic, you're being who you are, you're not worried about what everyone thinks about you or if they like you or don't. I think there's a beauty to that. I mean, so long as you're not disrespecting people and just being a total, you know, whatever, um, I think that's a great way to live. And, and you know, ultimately looking to please, uh, you know, the higher, for me, you know, I, I, want, I want God to be happy with what I'm doing every day. And, and if people aren't happy with it, then I'm like, Okay, that, that, that's your perspective. And so there are those players that sign these deals and they deliver because they got the blinders on. And of course, I don't know their process, but they are, they're worried about what they're doing. And this is mine. And I, where were you when I was 10 years old in my backyard kind of thing. But for me, I was ultimately so aware of everyone. And, and if somebody had a problem with me, like I said, I wanted to address it with them personally. I wanted to win people over and I wanted to be important. And that be, I think that came from wanting to win my father's approval as a kid. You know, I was performing in a lot of ways for his approval. So then I started performing for the fans' approval. And so when I signed the contract, I just felt the all eyes on me pressure versus the, you know, yeah, man, I'm pretty good at baseball. And this is just like, this is cool. And 
I'm just going to keep going and being good at baseball. And I have these other goals I want to do and instead of just buying into the whole, I'm the biggest, famous, most, you know, important thing in the Bay area. I mean, dude, it was such a selfish viewpoint that I had, but really I had, I didn't have the wisdom to have anything other, you know, any other viewpoint. Are there players you can call to mind who are better at dealing with that stuff that maybe you were a little bit envious of, of man, I wish I could be as relaxed as this guy. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, I think that the most successful athletes, and of course you guys would know better than me because you talk to a lot of them, but they have a perspective where something is more important than their sport, hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and whatever that is, right? Ideally, that'd be something healthy, um, but they have a perspective to keep the game as a game. And the, what that does is that enables you to, to be liberated, to be free when you play. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do this because I love it. Does my life and happiness depend on it? Absolutely not. Because I have this. And, that, and this other thing really defines me. Again, whatever that is. So uh, ideally, that's something healthy, right? But uh, for me, you know, I didn't ever have anything other than my performance that defined me. So guys like Buster Posey, mm -hmm. you know, Clayton Kershaw. I've met Clayton a few times, but I know about kind of what makes Clayton tick a little bit from talking to friends of his. And Ted Lilly is a good friend who, who played with him. And, you know, Madison Bumgarner. These guys... They, they know that there's something out there that's more important. And ultimately, the game's just a game. And I think there's such a beauty in seeing that for what it is, even if everyone around you is saying, this is our high holy religion, you know, the New York Yankee baseball and Yankee Stadium. You can't, you can't believe that. That's, that's idolatry. That's not real. Mm, interesting. What about the inverse of that, folks that you felt like you related with that, that felt that same pressure or felt that same magnitude um, that you did about, around the game? Well, unfortunately, athletes are not as vulnerable and candid as we would hope. Mm -hmm. And so ideally, you know, we would come together as teammates and really get into the nitty gritty of our psychology and how does this make me feel? And um, I didn't ever get into those conversations with many people along the way. I couldn't. A lot of guys, you don't want to come across as vulnerable as an athlete because that's weakness, right? Um, ultimately, humility is the greatest power, though, because that opens you up to be a channel for this other thing to happen, right? When you get out of the way, they say. Um, but for me, I would say Tim Lincecum is probably the guy that I had the most types of these conversations with. And Timmy reminded me a lot of myself growing up um, in the game where Timmy was way more kind of like a open, vulnerable, sensitive, just such a sweet soul, you know what I mean? And um, again, he, he won two Cy Youngs his first two seasons. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like never happened in the game. And so for him to then, how does that not feel like, you know, how are you going to do this? Do it again, do it again. I mean, you've kind of spoiled everyone in baseball now. There's, what are you going to do when an, uh, there's no higher honor? And so Timmy had a hard time with that. Mm -hmm. And I, I could definitely relate to that. Were you uh, in any way, did you impart any wisdom onto him as a result of that? You know, I think a lot of times we have to, we have to live something to really be able to impart that wisdom. And, mm -hmm. and through my years, you know, I, I had a real breakthrough personally in 2011. Um, and of course, Timmy was still on fire at that point. And mm -hmm. so, you know, yeah, I was able to, after my big breakthrough, I was able to talk to him a little bit about, man, we just got to remember what's really important here. I mean, mm -hmm. this game is awesome and it's fun, but you know, if there's not, again, something more important in your life, then this game is going to strangle you and, and it's going to eventually suffocate you. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You, the arc of your career has a, um, a parallel with the rise of social media. When you talk about codependency and validation, how did you, how did your interaction with social media 
how did that parallel path with your career kind of influence what you've talked about in terms of seeking validation? Yeah, I had a hard enough time without it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even, I couldn't ever go near it. I still have a very difficult time with social media. Again, because I have this ego that just wants to jump at the notion that I'm important or special or that I have a like or that there's a hashtag with me in it. And so I'm aware of that now, that that part of me that needs the validation. And so I try to keep it at arm's, you know, arm's length. But for me, I was on, I was on Twitter for about two months in uh, early 2009, mm-hmm. way back when it started. And mm-hmm. I didn't even actually know what it was. And I had a couple posts going, and I think I was talking about like I, I made a Dutch oven, like I kind of let one rip under the sheets, and then I kind of like <laughs> had my own Dutch oven, and I made a post. I didn't even know what I was doing. And I think some people thought it was funny, but then I read the, the comments of other people, kids, you know, adolescent age kids talking about me and how I'm the worst human on planet Earth, you know, because I'm making all this money and I'm, you know, sucking terribly at pitching. And so like literally just, okay, and I just erased it from my phone, never got back on it. Mm-hmm. And I had a I had somebody that helped helped at the time with social media, so I would send posts like through a text, and then they would put it on. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I still I still don't have it on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll make some posts, I'll send it to my manager. You know, I have a very difficult relationship with it. Plus, I don't need to be seeing a, every other picture of a chicken in a bikini. I mean, come on, that's not good for me at this point in my life. <laughs> right. And so, in 2010, you had this very difficult season. Um, with the San Francisco Giants. And then in 2012, it was like this amazing story of redemption and overcoming a lot of that stuff. And that is right around the rise of social media. I'm curious, did you have, did you have any desire to, to, um, to take a peek on Twitter in 2012 and try to see that positive reaction? And what was your relationship with, like, with the fans when you were seeking that positivity after mm. being a World Series hero? Yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, um, yeah. And when things are bad and people are saying bad stuff, it's it's a lot easier just to, you know, go bury your head in the sand and not mm-hmm. even pay attention. But when things ended up really good for me and I, I could contribute to the World Series in 2012, I looked at these opinions, but they didn't have any weight anymore. Hmm. Um, I kind of saw them for what they were. It's like, yeah, awesome. Sports fans are super happy about their team. I stopped taking things personally when I had my spiritual transformation in 2011. Mm-hmm. See, because before that, opinions were everything. They were very heavy. And so everything in my in myself was, was teetering on what they're going to say. And so I'd like look and be like, okay, if they say something good, yes. And if they don't, no. So it, their opinions, were, you know, it had everything to do with my self-image. Mm-hmm. And then now I could read them and be like, yeah, like, that's awesome. Like, you're talking crap about your team. That's cool, you know, or or you're saying something personal about me because this, listen, that's like, if you have that issue with your home sports team, like, that's on you. Like, you know, if that's the most important thing in your life, good for you, you know, whatever. But it didn't, it just was like, almost like vapor. Like, I, I could just push it away. It didn't even affect me anymore. And mm-hmm. that was like magical because my whole life was the opposite of that. That's so interesting. I love that metaphor of your, of giving something weight right? It, bec- it becomes completely uh, weightless or, or like you're saying, um, that vapid nature to it uh, takes hold when you stop giving weight to it. Absolutely. I mean, think about this, you know, if, if some guy, you know, you're walking on the street, you know, you're going, you're going home and some guy walks up to you on the street, you know, let's say he's, you know, he's, he's had a few too many or, you know, some a transient type of guy comes up and starts telling you something about your life, you're just gonna be like, yeah, whatever. Okay, get out of, like, get out of here. Okay, whatever. You, you, it's literally never gonna affect you. You're never gonna think about it again. Mm-hmm. But if somebody after a post you say that maybe in a power of, you know, position of power or influence over your life or somebody you look up to says the same thing, it's gonna define you. You're gonna think about it for the next two weeks. And you're gonna think about how do I change that person's opinion? And it's like, 
Okay, can we see all opinions like that? The conversation around mental health in sports seems like it's changing. NBA players and NFL players are starting to come forward. I'm curious what your reaction is, if any of that stuff's come across your radar. And do you have a theory as to why baseball players haven't been as forthcoming with mental health and, and their um, feelings about performance? You know, this is only starting to get on my radar a little mm -hmm. bit, and I need to delve more. But this is probably the, the subject that I'm most passionate about. You know, it's talking about the psychological implications of being on a field, being praised, you know, being put up on that altar like a god in a lot of ways. And what what does that do to our to our psyche? And, and what do we do when we go home with that? You know, and we go back to our families and um, it's a huge I mean, it needs to be talked about baseball players not being as forthcoming. You know, I think there are certain people in baseball and, and I think in all sports, but um, Danny Heron, a former pitcher with the Dodgers and other guys, we used to say, Danny would say, man, I just want to be a robot. I just want to go out there, throw the pitch, just like a robot, have no emotions, no feelings. And then I will be able to do my job really better than, than I ever could. But unfortunately we're humans and we can't, you know, be void of emotion out there. Um, but I do feel like there's a, the idea that if we are expressing this too much, now we're going to seem weak. I'm not going to have my mojo on the field tomorrow. I'm not going to be as feared by the opposing player. So I got to have this air of being strong, you know what I mean? And, and that applies to kids, whatever. But again, the greatest strength is humility. Mm -hmm. And music was always a part of your life throughout your baseball career, which is an artistic endeavor, which is an emotional endeavor. Do you feel like there's, um, there's a tendency to compartmentalize those two things or are, do they kind of work in harmony? Yeah, I mean, I think if you can bring authenticity to whatever you do, then that's going to be a win, you know? And in music, of course, people that are more authentic in music are going to connect with more people because it's universal. We want to know real stories. I mean, that's what people are listening to right now. They just want to hear something that's real. And so, you know, when you can just be completely who you are and trust that that's enough, you know, I tend to believe that my purpose on this planet is only going to be um, played out perfectly you know when i'm my most authentic person when i'm my most authentic um, version of myself and if i'm trying to be a fake person trying to do something then that's actually probably not what i should be doing mm -hmm. curious do you still are you still do you still watch baseball um i don't watch baseball but i have a healthy relationship with it mm -hmm. i just don't have time to be honest um mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll turn on a game, like I'll definitely turn on the playoffs, you know, this week, next week, because um, I'm inter I'm interested in it. Um, and I still have some friends in the game. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, you know, it just, it, I just feel so grateful, man, to on this side of my career, you know, for, for everything I did. And to be honest, my career was a huge letdown, you know, in a lot of ways. I went for, I came up short um, on a lot of my goals in sports and, uh, you know, I went into the game and I was on pace to win 300 after my first six years. You know, I was I had 100 wins. And, uh, you know, if I pitched 20 years, I would have been 300 in the hall. And uh, but things kind of tanked for me. And um, but I learned these incredible lessons to let go of the ego. And, uh, you know, when I got left off the 2010 roster with the Giants, that was a, a very defining moment in my life. And um I went home, called my dad, said, Dad, I'm going to quit baseball. Thinking about quitting, would you still love me? You know, 
and and I had to ask him that question, and he said, "Well, that that would be a, a bad business decision, but yeah, I would still love you, Barry. You know, of mm-hmm. course, I would still love you." Mm-hmm. So that you know that was a really hard time for me, but after realizing that the team could win a World Series without me, even though I was getting paid more than every guy on there to to bring them to it, it all changed for me, man. I, uh, baseball became fun. I found found this relationship with God, which could define me, and, and baseball stopped defining me. And I think that had a lot to do with coming back in 2012 and you know beating Verlander and winning the World Series. I mean, that was all because I didn't care about glorifying myself anymore, man. So That's incredible. That's a r- really beautiful way to frame that story. And I think that that's an important lesson for a lot of people. I'm curious for you as a parent now, uh, what, ad- what attitude do you have towards youth sports? Yeah, my wife and I, you know, we've talked about it because of course people are like, so is your son a lefty or a righty? Is he going to pitch or, you know, and I'm like, man, I'm terrified to push him into anything. I'm probably erring too much on the side of let him figure out what he wants to do. Um, but for me, you know, we need to just remind our children that this is not the end of kind of who they are. These kids are so much more than what they do. And if we can instill that in our kids, and I certainly want to instill in mine, like you can go be good at baseball or he loves swimming now, you know, but that's great. But did you lose? Oh, I don't care. Did you do your best? Okay, awesome. Perfect. That's it. That's all you can do. You can't be more than your best, even though we all convince ourselves and we try to, right? When we need that result so bad. But, um, you know, for me, man, pro sports has gotten a little... um, or sorry, uh, you know, children's sports have gotten a little too intense, you know, especially with these traveling baseball teams. And man, it's like, are these the dad's dreams or are they the kid's dreams? Like, let's be honest here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got to keep it fun and we got to keep it light. And, you know, if these kids are defining their their uh, self-worth on their baseball performance or sports performance, uh, you know, as 10, 12, 15 year olds, it's only going to get worse. They're just going to transfer that need onto something else, you know, in 10 years and mm-hmm. something else in 10 more. So I think we need to figure out now that let's, let's remember that this is just what we do. It's not who we are. Mm-hmm. How old are your kids? Five and two. Are they <laughs> getting a late start? Are they starting to take interest in athletics at all? Not really. Yeah. It's kind of funny. My five-year-old can't stand throwing a baseball. Like he doesn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> so I'm like, perfect. That doesn't I'm not transferring my stuff onto you. No. That's great. I'm sure that's a relief in some ways, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, I just got to, I got to flow with what he wants, man. You know, I can't be, there's this great book called the drama of the gifted child. And it's all about the parents transferring their needs onto their kids. Mm. And my father was always telling me, you got to be on magazine covers. You got to be, go to sign in New York, be the king of New York city. You know, I was like, dude, who, who, who am I doing this for? Is this yours? Do you want to get out there? My dad actually would say, Barry, when we're on the mound, I was in the big leagues. He would be talking to me. My wife, or my uh, my mom would be in the background and be like, Joe, you're not on the mound. Barry's on the mound. <laughs> right. Oh, you know what I mean, Roberta. Mm-hmm. Like it was like that. So I feel like a lot of us can just do that without, you know, if we're not, if we're not cautious, we'll, uh, we'll end up doing that with our kids. As a fan of the game, it's a bit disappointing for me to hear you talk about your career in such a negative light because I look at it as an incredible career. And I think you you added a lot to the game and you brought a lot of joy to a lot of people's lives. I grew up with a guy who's an Oakland A's fan. He's got a Barry Zito uh, photo still hanging in his house. And, I, <laughs> and I'm sure there are thousands and millions of stories that are, that are just like that. I'm curious, if you were to try to find any silver lining, what are the moments that you look back on your career with, with the most fondness and the most positive light? That's good. Um... You know, I say that my career was a letdown because 
just more on a baseball side of it, not mm-hmm. as an interpersonal kind of whole picture side, just zooming in. Um, mm-hmm. From a whole picture standpoint, <clears throat> my greatest failure was actually the thing I'm the most grateful for. 2010, getting left off the roster, getting sent home, you know, basically being a cheerleader glorified in the dugout, you know, um, in that real dark place. That That's what led me to realize there's actually more than me, you know, there's something greater to live for. Uh, and I was actually really ashamed of that ring for a long time. I, I got that World Series ring, and I got booed when I ran out to get it on the field the next year. Wow. And um, that ring always reminded me of my greatest failure. And the 2012 ring, which I would think, oh, I earned this ring. I was on the field earning that. Better feelings around that. No, I'm actually – the 2010 ring is, is, is the one for me because that's the one that changed my life. It caused me to go up against my, you know, my worldview. Uh, it changed everything. So – that's that's really it, man, for me. You wear that like a badge of honor almost, something that you yeah. go, went through and became a better person as a result of. It is, man. It's like, it's all bloody and like that thing was just in the bunker. You know, the 12's <laughs> all shiny. Like, oh, I pitched some good baseball games. Cool. I didn't learn anything that year. I just enjoyed the fruits of, you know, the, the icing, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But yeah, my, my best ever career game was definitely 2012 and pitching in the NLCS in St. Louis and helping the team get back to uh, San Francisco for the last two games of that series and you know, and then the World Series game. That was baseball memories. Those are the top two for sure. Do you miss that camaraderie of being on a team and being in a locker room? Does it, is that something that you that was hard to give up at the end of your career? You know, for me, unfortunately, I, I didn't. I, I always heard retired players say, I miss being around the guys. And because I had such a death grip on what I had to achieve statistically to validate myself, I could never really enjoy my team to that level mm. until the end of my career. And so, you know, uh, I wish I could go back and again, see the game for what it was, just a game. But really, I mean, life, it's all about people, man. You know, you're on your deathbed. You're not remembering your victory and your work or your career. You're remembering people and how they made you feel or or how you made them feel. If a young pitcher were to come to you and say, hey, Barry, I'm, I'm having trouble with the above the shoulders part of pitching. I'm having trouble focusing and I'm having trouble with my kind of my self-image. What advice would you give them? Man, I mean, I would kind of have to start early you know all right let's go back to your childhood just like a therapist would i guess okay let's like let's talk about what this game means to you you know let's talk about how important it is in in the in the pie chart of your life you know how big is that slice Hmm. and you know you start there because if you have value and self-worth outside of the game i don't think you you have those issues as much so i'm curious and we'll get you out of here on this one what's next for you what are you looking forward to most what are you excited about Man, right now I'm just uh, I'm living a solitude life in the in the studio. Um, I've been writing songs in Nashville for a few years, but I'm I'm diving into my life dream musically, which is to produce and uh, and write. But um, so I'm a mad scientist in the studio, man. I'm I'm knocking out you know 400 page manuals and learning all my tools so that I can start you know writing songs again. But just making all the tracks and having a great time, man. That's incredible. And actually, one more question for you. Um, you'll see I am more than an athlete. It's hanging up all over this place. It's it's yeah. more than a mantra for us. It's some kind of a guiding principle. Uh, what, is that, what does that mean to you when you hear I am more than an athlete? I mean, I think that's just truth, man. You know, um, in society today where attention and, and adoration, right, magazine covers and, and social media followers, you know, can tend to define us, we just have to remember that, you know, people are human beings first and athletes second. Barry, thank you so much for sitting down with us. I again want to just praise you on your on your candor and your positivity, and and uh, continue just 
wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thanks so much, man. It's been fun. Before we let you out of here, remind the audience who you are and who runs this station. I'm Barry Zito, and we run this station. WRTS is produced by John Fontanelli. Our editor is Chris Wotherspoon. Our production assistant is Logan Castrodale. Additional production support by Matt Perret, Lauren Jones, Cody Moore, and Uninterrupted's athlete relations team. Our executive producer is TD St. Matthew Daniel. I'm Joseph Fourier, and this is WRTS. We run this station.